Um, the next uh, uh, presenter is Dr. Nola Hancock from Macquarie University. Um, Dr. Hancock, uh, Hancock uh, Nola was born and raised on a mixed farming property in the Mallee um, of South Australia uh, and many decades, uh, decades later she found herself working on the natural environment industry in Sydney as an environmental project officer and a bush care supervisor from local councils. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of getting a theme here, there's, there's a lot of gra grassroots people that have uh, seen their way right through the process and uh, now working in uh, uh, research, um, grounded research I'd probably say. Um, many years later, uh, as a mature age student, uh, she completed a PhD and that was in the role of planning providence in restoration ecology under climate change. Uh, and which she completed in 2013. And since then she's worked at Macquarie University, Sydney as a research fellow and many projects within the biodiversity node of the New South Wales Adaption Research Hub and a lecturer on biodiversity and conservation. Nairola's current research focus is on improving ecological restoration practices and biodiversity conservation in the face of climate change and she was recently lead author of Climate Ready Revegetation, a guide for natural resource managers. Whilst restoration ecology under climate change is Noel's focus, she is also has an interest in taxonomy of the Mallee species of a home and recently self-published a Ute Guide uh, to the Mallees of that area. I'll, I'll, I'll have that conversation later. <laughs> uh, very good. Um, so with, uh, this is a longer talk. Uh, this is a 45 minute uh, session. Um, and then we'll uh, just wrap up at the end of it and break for lunch after that. Break for lunch after that. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Um, it's a really hard gig being the last speaker, so I know you're all getting very restless, which is fair enough. If you want to stand up and you know stand around the room, that's fine. Please feel free to do that. And I'll try not to take up the whole talk of my um, okay, so today, like everybody else, um, who's presenting research and things, I'm here on behalf of my co-authors. So the co-authors for the Climate Ready Revenge Guide, which is what I'm talking about today. Um, are some people you may know, Rebecca Harris, she is a modeler from the University of Tasmania. Linda Broadhurst, some of you know very well from CSIRO, she's a Providence Queen. And Leslie Hughes from Macquarie University, so she has a really excellent communicator on climate change, works with the IPCC and gives many, many talks, television, radio, and So today we are going to um, have a look at the guide. You should have a copy of that um, on your table. You're reading it right now. And there is also an update sheet that goes with it. Unfortunately, when you're using um, web-based tools, they change. Within about a week of publishing that, the AAL actually made some changes to their website, which was extremely annoying. So today I'm just going to actually put the guide into context. Um, I'm going to go through the steps that are in the guide to give you a bit of an idea how to use it, um, try and sort of give you some ideas of how you can use it in practice, and of course, you know, give some key takeaways that you Just um, to tell you how this came about, um, some of the co-authors and I, about 18 months ago we were going to practitioner type workshops and we were finding that the audience was just absolutely overwhelmed with you know, how to manage native vegetation, how to do revegetation under climate change. So 
you know, the presenters are standing up here and saying, it's going to be bad, you know, we have to do something about it. And the questions are coming back, well, you know, what do we do? And that's obviously a very difficult thing to, to answer as a presenter up here at that local level. So we wanted to put something together. We know that there are tools out there that will be helpful. We know that they're not um, in the right places at times, so we just bring them so that you can read them. And sometimes there's just not instructions on how to use these things. So that's what the guide is all about. It's a guide to using these online tools. You can call it a toolbox if you like. That's probably what it is. Um, and it gives step-by-step -step instructions on how to use these tools. So that's what the guide is. It's just as important that I tell you what the guide isn't. So it is only about climate change. So as you all know, when you're doing any sort of planting, any sort of revegetation, there are all these other things that you have to consider, like aspects, soil, topography, etc., etc. So this is only about climate change. So for that reason, you know, we can't give specific recommendations. Um, this is where your local knowledge comes in. Once you've looked at the tools, that's when you start to apply your local knowledge. So um, it's come out in this hard copy of the guide. It's on a website. It's been hosted by the ANPC. So if you Google Climate Ready Reveg ANPC, you'll find um, the link there. There's also there um, a downloadable PDF. So if you have friends that would like a copy, they can actually download it from the website as well. All of that is written in the guide as well. Okay, so we've had some excellent talks about climate change and in fact all of the talks today have been excellent and um, it's not my job to bring it together but I would just like to say we're all kind of singing from that same hymn sheet here. Um, so I would like to reinforce perhaps not really repeat what's been said um, but it's nice to know that in this period of such great uncertainty there are some common themes that are going through all of these presentations. So just wanted to say one thing about the Paris Agreement which Mark touched on. Um, so yes the agreement is there that we're going to try and limit increases in temperature to well below 2 degrees. It's just really important to remember that the pledges as they are now, and this is even before the US has decided to withdraw, those pledges add up to almost 3 degrees. So part of this whole accord was every five years the signatories need to actually strengthen their resolve and actually start cutting further and deeper and harder. So we, you know, we are looking at this stage at three degrees unless we actually get in there and start doing more. And that's not always clearly understood, I don't think. So just saying we're going to sort of limit it to two degrees, much, much more work needs to be done yet to get to that sort of level. Um, so this is just another um, anomalies chart, um, which Mark showed a different one. I just put this up because I wanted to say we have to keep thinking climate change is happening now and that's something everyone's been saying as well. It's not something that's going to happen in the future, it is already happening now. So as this chart is showing, this is a temperature anomaly, um, so it's the global annual average temperature for the 20th century. For the last three years we've been saying, you know, globally it was the hottest year. So that's, you know, the last three years in a row. 
And I'd just like to say too, the Climate Council is a really good source of climate information and that's freely available information. So last year a lot of records were broken, the last summer in Sydney it was an absolute stinker, I don't know what it was like here. And, but it was a real light globe moment, I think, for a lot of people. And I've really connected with people that um, this isn't just an anomaly, we're really, this is what's going to be happening now. So a lot of records were broken, just to highlight a few of them. In 89 locations, it was the highest, the record highest summer rainfall. And in 66 locations, the record highest summer temperatures. 50 locations um, had a record number of summer days over 35 degrees. So it's not just um, average air temperatures that are increasing, it's these extreme weather events. They are also increasing in frequency and in some cases they're increasing in intensity. And this will continue. So this is going to be problematic for some species and what makes it really difficult when we're managing native species is that species will differ in their vulnerability to climate change and that will depend on their ability to disperse so that means that to be able to keep up with climate change to go to somewhere where the, the climate's a little bit better it will depend on their genetic makeup within their populations the gene flow uh, through populations whether that's still there we've fragmented a lot of populations um, and whether they've got enough what's called phenotypic plasticity, whether within themselves they have these tolerance levels that means they can actually withstand hotter days and fewer days rain or that sort of thing. So also species differ in their ability to keep pace with climate change. So as Steve said, um, species are already moving, it's not just we, um, native plants and animals are moving as well but they're moving at different rates. So things like trees actually are going to, they're much slower, their pace of movement is much slower compared to, say, animals that can move really quickly. So that makes it hard to manage. So where we can, we look for sort of generalisations. One generalisation we can make is um, species with wide distributions. They're thought to have a broad tolerance for climate, for different climates. So they should be advantaged over those species that, you know, have very narrow distributions. But one thing that's really important to remember, even if a species has got a wide distribution, it doesn't mean to say that the local population will be okay. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail shortly. So we rely on models to inform us uh, what these climate change projections are likely to be and how species responses um, are likely to be. But these models are imperfect. And just an example, if we have 12 models um, trying to give us the output for some sort of a variable, you'll probably get 12 answers. But one thing that these models do agree on, and that is that habitat is going to contract. In some cases, whole vegetation communities are projected to actually disappear. And I just, and of course, there's many different ways of modelling, um, as Mark mentioned, it depends also on what sort of modelling that you use. But one I just like to show that um, I think is quite poignant is um, 
This one here by Michael Dunlop, NL from CSIRO. It was done in 2012. So they said under a high CO2 emission scenario, greenhouse gas emission scenario, where will environments be similar and dissimilar? So where on the map you can see the green, that's saying that the environments will be similar. So this map is projecting what in, these environments will be like in 2030. And as you can see, in some places, you know, they're projected to be the same. But when you get to 2017, it is saying that there is going to be a lot of dissimilarity. Environments will be completely different in some of these places. So we are seeing some quite big changes already. Um, globally, we are seeing um, salt marshes being replaced by mangroves. And um, in the Arctic, we are seeing lichen and mosses communities being changed into or changing into forests. So here in Australia, we are seeing some big changes. And just talking to people um, throughout the morning, I gather that there are some changes going on here as well with the dieback of certain species. So um, it's relevant. So we we have had a climate change extinction. It is an animal. It's the bramble case melanus if I pronounce that correctly, because of sea level rise. So there are lots of examples of um, dieback, of forests in Western Australia, kelp forests, mangoes in the Gulf and Carpentaria, we know about the coral bleaching, and um, the flying foxes are really being hit very badly on these really extreme temperature days. And of course they're very important pollinators for a lot of our plants, so it's all interrelated. Okay, so to get now onto the actual guide, so we think there's three steps that we can take to try and work out which species and which populations are going to be sustainable. That's a hard word to say quickly, um, under climate change. So those steps are trying to get climate projections as close to your site as possible. Um, looking at the species distribution and climate envelope to work out the slightly sustainability um, prospects. And then remembering that even if the species does look to be sustainable, you have to then think about the local population as well. So we look at provenance strategies in step three. So there's a lot of sort of sub-steps in there. I won't go through them all today. We'll just have a look at some of them. So the first one is to get climate projections for your site. So there are two ways to do this. Um, there's a very good website, the Climate Change, climate change in Australia website, which uh, divides Australia up into eight clusters. So here in the ACT, you're actually in the Murray Basin cluster. So as you can see, that's quite a big area. A really good website, there's um, lots of different tools in there, so all of these links are listed in the guide, so you don't need to write those down. Um, but there's lots of different tools in there that you can have a bit of a play around, and it's some very good information, background information as well. So that's one way that you can do it, or you can actually go to another website, which is um, set up by the ACT government and the New South Wales government, which actually divides New South Wales into about 10 regions and the ACT has its own region. So that's what we call a downscale projection. So that gives you sort of much 
better information at a more local level than looking at that big climate change in Australia. <coughs> so it's very easy to get these projections off the NARPIM site, so that's the one that I will uh, concentrate on. Has anybody used this website? Got projections off this one at all? Okay. So the step-by-step -step instructions are in the guide for this as well. So what this does, it actually gives projections for two um, time periods in the future. So the first one is called the near future, and that's uh, 2030, a 20-year period around 2030. And the far future, a period around 2017. And that's based off the average climate variables for a baseline period of 
perhaps with some steps I'll even be able to talk So the first thing you'll note here, um, you can see that there are some very big ranges here. So if we look at the annual average here, um, you can see the 2017. That's actually saying that um, rainfall will be unchanged on an annual basis. But if you look at where all the models are, it spans both a dry and a wetting. So the range there is something that could be 10 degrees dry, 10 degrees 10% dry above um, the baseline period, or it could be 13% you know, wetter. That's the sort of range that you're dealing with. But when you start to look at it through the seasons, have a look at autumn. Again, that's spanning a dry and a wetting, but it's a huge range. You can see any one model is saying, you know, down to around about less 10%, up to another model saying um, around could be 53% more. But you can see that it's a long way, I can't quite see that here. Have a look at how far away the models are with their projections as well. So if you have a look in spring, you can see that all of those models are saying that in spring it's likely to have less rainfall than it's being received now. So I think it's really important to go in and have a look at what it's saying on a seasonal basis as well. Don't just have a look at the annual because that might not tell you what you want to know. So that might have all sorts of implications for when you actually do your planting as well. So you can also go in a little bit further into the website. So you know, get your PDF, you can go into the website further and you can actually get <coughs> more detailed projections. So they are really the same graphs as we just saw. But what you can get there is the actual values. So the actual values of the range and the actual values of each of those 12 models. So that might be something that you want to go into as well. So the take-home messages for looking at that step one, for looking at your climate projections, just remember all models are imperfect. There's a whole range of variabilities there that affect what goes into those models and what goes out. Um, it depends a lot on what we actually do about our greenhouse gas emissions. So those marking uh, projections, they are all based off the highest traje trajectory. Okay, and just these RCPs. This is explained in the guide. A representative concentration pathway. It's really, I suppose, saying how much greenhouse gas emission is going into the atmosphere. If it's low, it's called a 2.6. If it's high, it's called 8.5. We're currently tracking that trajectory. It's important to look at the seasonal variation, not just the annual variation. Have a look at that level of confidence. As we saw in the spring, all of those models were saying it's negative for some of the seasons. You know, it is spanning both a drying and a wetting. Don't just look at um, the means. Make sure you go and have a look at all of these other things as well. It's probably going to be the extreme events that are going to have the biggest effect on the species. So have a look at all those other things that are important for your species as well. Maximum temperatures, frost nights, the things that you know that affect the species that you're looking after and wanting to replant. So because there is so much uncertainty, um, one of the recommendations is to, when you're looking at climate projections, is to use 
a worst case scenario. So that might be that you know there's going to be a drying of 30% at some stage. That could be a worst case scenario. Have a look at the best case scenario, which might be that increase of 50%, and have a look at the mean. So that's quite a bit of work, but um, it does mean that you're kind of covering all of those bases. So moving on to the next step, we want to actually start thinking about, you know, can we tell if a species is likely to be sustainable or not, and should we be including this in the vegetation? So all of this is done within the Atlas of Living Australia. Now, has anybody used the Atlas of Living Australia before, the ALA? Yep, good, okay. So I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with it, I must say. Sometimes it's a bit difficult to work with and other times it's fantastic. But um, it does give us some very good information. So all of this is done in the mapping and analysis section. And this whole part of, of step two comes from a paper that Trevor Booth did in 2012. Trevor Booth actually uh, works for CSIRO and I acknowledge his contribution to this paper as well. He wasn't a co-author. Okay. So the first thing we want to do when we're thinking about the species is know the distribution of the whole species. And within the ALA, we can very easily get up a map of the current distribution of the species. What we want to do then is add the location of your planting site to that distribution map so that you can see where your site is in relation to this distribution. So remembering that we're saying that species that have got a wide distribution are likely to have this broad climate tolerance and so you know you would think that probably they're going to be okay and in the case of this one which is Eucalyptus meliodora which is one that I think you all know um, and the site that's used is Albury right pretty much looks like there's quite a bit of variation um, big distribution not exactly in the middle there so I would look at that and say that looks to be you know, quite sustainable. Now I've got a question mark up there saying add location planting site. The ALA changed the way we do this. So I, you, know, you may not want to go ahead with this, you might just want to visualise where your site is because now you need to have a login and all sorts of things to be able to do that step. There's an update sheet there and the instructions on how to do that in there. But we can actually get more and better information on that distribution. And to do that, we want to create a climate envelope of that species. So we want to see where its distribution fits within key environmental variables. So just keeping with our theme of using mean average temperature, we've got um, temperature along the bottom line here of a graph, and we have precipitation on the y-axis. So this is called a scatter plot. So what we've done is we've taken those points, those distribution points there, and we've plotted them in, in the scatter plot against its temperature and its precipitation. So now you can actually see where where does the, the majority of the distribution of that species lie, and we import our planting site, and that gets put in there. So we can actually see that this is where Again, this is Aubrey. The current temperature is about 14 and a half, and I think it's about 700 for the um, precipitation. 
At the moment, that site is right in the middle of the climate, <coughs> climate envelope. So that actually looks quite sustainable to me. So as the planting site, you do need to actually put in decimal that long into the Atlas of Living Australia. And the instructions, it's very easy to do. The instructions are on that update sheet, so you can refer to that. It's really just a matter of going to the map, hover over where your site is, and that is the right hand corner. So once you've actually got that set up, you've got your climate envelope, you know where your site is there, you then have to visualise where your site might be within that current climate envelope into the future. So there are all sorts of possible scenarios that could play out here. So just looking at these, um, first of all, we might find using a best case scenario that in actual fact the site won't be that, that much difference to what it is now. And so, yeah, that species probably looks to be okay to plant. We might get a situation where um, the site will actually be somewhere towards the edge of the current climate envelope. And then, of course, we have to sort of start thinking about the species. And I have to say, um, we have to be careful not to overestimate what a species can do, and we have to be careful not to underestimate it. If we sort of think, oh, I don't think this is going to work, then we actually start to reduce biodiversity if we don't you know, keep planting it. If we do keep planting it and we have failures, then of course, you know, there's that, all, that, that expense has gone by the wayside. So we have to be able to weigh that up. But one thing we would do here is start thinking about, well, if it's moved that much, will the local population be able to handle that new environment that it's going to be under. Another example, of course, is um, quite clearly the site will no longer be in the species climate envelope. And again, you know, does that mean that you just don't bother replanting it? You know, as we know, all of these projections are a little bit uncertain. We don't know, as um, Alison pointed out, there's so much we don't know about species anyway. So um, there's obviously not a question about provenance there because, you know, it's going to be very difficult for the species. But we'll talk about provenance in a minute. So that's all visualising. So you don't actually do that in the ALA. You just uh, um, apply those projections and you know, print, the, print the graph out and see where your site will go that way. So we have to just um, think of the limitations of what we're using as well. Um, the ALA, the records that go in there, um, is put there by people in the public and there are a lot of mistakes made, you know, they aren't all clean. So we have to be prepared to sort of question some of those data points. So there are a couple of ways to do that and these are just listed in the graph how to do that. So you can remove the point or you can draw polygons around the area that you just want to look at if there were lots of mistakes. That can be a little bit fiddly, so I think you can probably um, just use common sense. <coughs> you can also sort of point on, uh, <coughs> hover over with your mouse on a point and it will show you on the distribution map where that is. So if you are worried about that point, you can see that it's in there, you see probably Someone's just put in a wrong lat long, that probably is that species. Um, 
And just should add too that sometimes, so when we look at this point up here, I really question whether that was the species or not, but I went and I had a look where that um, where that record came from, and I think probably um, that is the shortest meliodora, but I think it's in you know, the botanic garden. So that does tell us some information about the species. It says probably it can tolerate the temperature up there, but we don't know if it's water or not. So, okay. Well, the other thing we can do, there is another tool that isn't actually um, detailed in the guide. The guide is written on for a national audience. We have got a tool called Niche Finder, which uh, the link is in the guide. It has advantages over the ALA in that it uses clean herbarium data. So you can be pretty confident that it is a species that you're getting the data for, but it may include those ones in the planter. It is much easier to use than the ALA, but it is only for New South Wales species, so that's why we didn't put everything about it in the guide. But you have a lot of common species, obviously, in New South Wales, that's pretty good for you guys to use. So the, new, uh, the red dots are um, New South Wales uh, distribution, and the blue dots you know, are the rest of Australia. The thing with this is, though, you can't add your site to those scattered dots. So um, if you go to the handout sheet, the instructions on how to use that are there. But very quickly, if we're looking at um, another one of your local species, <coughs> um, all you have to do to get to here is click on species, click on view niche breath data you'll see that there's a whole heap of different environmental variables there, so soil, topography, all sorts of climate stuff that you can use. Click on the one you want to use, on using um, annual temperature again. You get that graph, you go over to where it says y-axis, what do you want to put there, I say precipitation again, and we get that scanning plot. So it's just in a couple of clicks and you've got it, so it's pretty easy. So you can actually check outliers um, here by clicking on there and it shows you on the distribution map where it is. So again, I think it is that species, but you know, I think the map will obviously put in there incorrectly somehow and that didn't get picked up. So the other thing you can do is go back and check the records for the A and I of course too. So you need to know where the site is, you need to know where it is currently, so you need to know um, what's your current, whatever environmental variable it is you're using, in this case average temperature, average rainfall, visualise it on that scatter plot and then use your projections again to visualise where it's going. So that's what we're saying. Okay, so the next step is to think, okay, if we've decided that the species is likely to be around, we now have to think about if the local population is likely to be um, able to keep pace with climate change, able to adapt. So we're talking about, Peter was talking about paradigms before. Um, our paradigm in the bushwood gen industry has been to only use local provenance. And the reason we used that was because um, it's growing there, it's been growing there for a long time, adapted to the local conditions, therefore it should be the best. So as we now know, local conditions 
have changed, they are changing and they will continue to change. So I think we really do need to question that paradigm that that's the appropriate one to use in this day and age. So there's lots of things that come into consideration with your local population, you know, have we fragmented it? Is there any gene flow there? You need gene flow to be able to genetically adapt to new conditions um, and to prevent inbreeding depression. Um, and if we have got any sort of concerns with any of those things, we, I think we have to consider now supplementing the local provenance with um, non-local provenances. So there are some different strategies um, and I don't think I'm going to have time to go into them all today. These are outlined in the guide and the good thing about if we use this paper from Prova et al, that's available um, online. So that link is in the reference section of the guide. So I recommend that you take a read of this. So we can really look at these different strategies and we say instead of using the cross in for site and the round dot there is just using local provenance. So instead of just using local provenance, there are different strategies um, like composites to increase gene flow, still use local but start getting seed from areas nearby and then to a lesser extent further out to try and replicate that historic gene flow. The admixture approach, again, still use some local but it's a bit of a scattergun approach. Um, you know, get your seed source from all around the place and that sort of is trying to take care of any eventuality <coughs> for those um, climate projections and to increase the ability of the species of the population to adapt to climate change. Um, jump all around here. This is the newest one, climate adjusted strategy. That's saying we've got a climate gradient, say that's from a wet to so wetting to drying. Still use some local, but start getting the seeds in the, in the direction of how the climate is changing. Not exclusively that way, so don't go exclusively to a drawing, but you know, tend off that way. And the last one is a predictive climate change, climate change, predictive provenance strategy, which says, look, if your site now is just so different, if your site is just so different and you know nothing you can do using local is going to work, just go straight to you know what you think it's going to be like. So that may or may not be appropriate here. Certainly, I think in restoration sites where the soils are completely different, maybe that's an appropriate thing to do. So that might be controversial. Um, so I have just gone through those quickly. And so we just don't have perfect knowledge and we never will have as you know we know it is really quite disappointing how little information there is out there on the species, the common species. Um, but we have to balance that urgency with we have to make decisions now with waiting for that perfect knowledge. So I'd implore you all if you are able to do any sort of experimental um, revegetation, you know, that, that is the way to go. We need to monitor what we're doing and we need to be able to document that and communicate it within us all. That's sort of really the only way I think we're going to get there. Um, so the take home messages for those, those last two steps are, um, I think it's a really good idea to practice using these tools 
by getting the same outcomes that are in the guide. There's a couple of places in the ALA where you can come unstuck, but just make sure that you're doing all those steps properly. Um, and you can also cross-reference, of course, with Niche Finder. So quickly go to Niche Finder, do your scatter plot, and then make sure it's the same as the ALA, and then you know that you've, you've got your um, planting site in the right spot. Check, do your accuracy checks on some of that data if you think it's not looking right. Understand the caveats of all those online tools, know what you're working with. Acknowledge that there's still so many uncertainties and so many unknowns. Um, we don't know about species evolutionary potential or even you know, what their genetic diversity is. We sometimes don't even know how they disperse and that's a fairly basic thing to understand. This is quite an important one, uh, available niche or realised niche. So where a species is now, that's its realised niche. But we don't know what it is that's actually keeping it in that niche. Is it something other than climate? So be very aware of that. It could be soils, it could be pollinators, it could be anything. And of course, just remember, um, you know, there's all these other planting requirements. We are only talking about climate change here. So um, we wrote this off our own bat. Um, we got really concerned that there needed to be some more information out there. So REH very kindly has funded some workshops and I've been running around New South Wales like a Leyland brother, giving some <laughs> workshops and seminars and things. So it's been quite good fun. Um, so I've asked people, you know, over this period, you know, how do you think you would use this? To, you know, pass that on. I think we can all share in what we're doing. So um, some of these people have said, well, we're using this as being able to sort of get us a list of species we think we have to watch. So we're not doing anything, but we've got this list of ones. We're just seeing what you're doing out in the field. We're validating what's going on in the ground to see if it's the climate. And other people saying we're actually using this as a training guide for our staff to learn how to understand species distributions and what that means. And one person said, well, they actually will be using it to develop a kind of adjusted seed strategy. So that's just some of the things that's been used for. Um, I was going to just talk a little bit about feminists. Um, okay, so when I did my PhD, I looked at six species and looked at whether local was the best for these six species um, from a prominent perspective. It, they weren't for four of them, so local wasn't the best. But two of them that were are species that are very common here. So one of those is Femida. So Femida is just widespread, and so you think what could possibly go wrong? Um, one of the things I guess that can go wrong is um, when we have these different chromosome numbers in populations, sometimes that means that they can't outcross. And I really don't have the knowledge to say whether that's a big problem for Femida or not. Um, maybe it's not. You know, you look at that distribution and say, well, it's just, you know, it's been fine for however long. So, but I just need to raise that, that um, there, there will be some issues from time to time that you may want to just you know, delve in a little bit deeper as well. Um, I think I should leave it there. I hope that last bit didn't just muddy the water though. Um, 
change uh, with Professor Howden's uh, uh, introduction uh, and uh, big picture. Uh, Professor Bridgewater, I think, uh, made some good points on stewardship. Uh, uh, we need new models. Resilience is critical. The importance of indigenous knowledge. Um, uncertainty is certain. 
um, and the ability to deal with, uh, we need to work out ways how we deal with the knowledge that we've um, now acquired over the morning. I think we've built up a number of tools, but uh, just to finish off, I'd ask if you could all thank all of our speakers.